You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, Implementing the Demands of Modern Society. This is Lecture 4, entitled Spiritual Science, Freedom of Thought and Societal Forces, given in Stuttgart on December 19, 1919. For observers of contemporary culture, it feels somewhat like an oppressive nightmare to realize how few people understand that we are on a slippery slope with regard to the most important aspects of our culture. Surely the events of recent years, which broke over us like a tidal wave, have made this fact obvious. Nonetheless, many of our contemporaries clearly believe that if we just start with our current situation, everything else will fall into place. They assume that we will be able to avoid deepening chaos without implementing comprehensive changes. Over the years, I have felt compelled to speak out against this perception, pointing repeatedly to the need to learn new ways of thinking that will motivate us to plumb the depths of our intellectual and cultural life in search of foundations for a real restructuring of public affairs. Admittedly, a small number of people are indeed aware that decisive action is needed if we are not to continue down this slippery slope. Even these few people, however, show little understanding of the reality of the situation, namely that we must make every effort to achieve a new metamorphosis of the human spirit if we hope to heal the many pathological aspects of our declining culture. Three phenomena shed light on the most important points for understanding our need and our time and its needs. The first phenomenon, which I would call the principal shortcoming of our time, is inadequate insight into cultural and spiritual affairs. For decades, my lectures on spiritual science have attempted to draw attention to this shortcoming and its consequences for humanity's present and future development. The second phenomenon, which I would would call the principal demand of our time, speaks loudly and clearly in contemporary realities. It has resounded in many hearts for over a century, ever since the words of Schiller's Don Carlos were first uttered, Give me us freedom of thought. Deeper insight into the political and cultural events of our time reveals that many social demands actually conceal the demand for the free activity of human thinking, the inmost core of our being. Many people sigh under the burden of ways of thinking derived either from outdated institutions or from recent economic circumstances. They sense that official credos or economic constraints obstruct independent thought. Their actual longing remains largely unconscious. They are aware only of a vague dissatisfaction that they cannot freely admit namely that they feel entitled to a more humanly worthy existence. We have implemented a great variety of social programs that are well-intentioned, 
but are not based on insight into the human soul's most profound yearning, namely the longing for absolute freedom of activity for the inmost core of our being, in short, freedom of thought. We sense that modern cultural, political and economic circumstances embed us in social forces of such complexity that our intellectual understanding and our programmatic aspirations are inadequate to the task of shaping social structures, such that individuals, conscious of their humanity, can affirm that they are leading humanly worthy lives. Mastering social forces, therefore, is the principal need of our time. Because I have lectured so extensively in Stuttgart over the years, I assume that most of you are aware of the inner purpose and spirit of spiritual science, which sees itself as a cultural need of our times. I will therefore raise only a few principal points here today. By way of introduction, however, let me mention something we have already discussed here in various contexts. Outsiders often associate spiritual science with all kinds of elusive mysticism, unsound theosophy and the like. In spite of all our efforts to explain the true purpose of spiritual science, why is it so often interpreted as its exact opposite? The reason has to do with the fact that for three or four centuries our lives have been increasingly shaped and dominated by a way of thinking epitomized by modern natural science. It makes no difference whether we are scientists or simple, uneducated people. Whenever we seek explanations of human nature, society, or the cosmos, our thinking is modeled on natural scientific patterns of thought. If you ha have often heard me lecture, you know that I do not underestimate scientific thinking. I certainly acknowledge its great triumphs, but it has achieved them and taken hold of a large part of our life in the process by becoming tremendously one-sided over the last three or four centuries. When we think scientifically, our knowledge is based on lifeless nature, that is, on physics and chemistry, which leads straight to technology. This same thinking underlies all of our modern institutions and even infiltrates our methods of healing and other aspects of knowledge intended to be directly helpful to human beings. But if we are unbiased in acknowledging the monumental progress of biology, physics and chemistry, and in appreciating the scope of conscientiously applied scientific methods, we will also be fully aware of the limitations of natural scientific thinking. If we delve more deeply into what we now call real science, we discover that it is best at providing information about lifeless nature and the aspects of life most closely involved with lifeless matter. But when we consider the scope of natural scientific cognition, we stop short when we confront the inner nature of the human being. Without succumbing to self-deception, it is impossible to believe that the scientific views that lead so deeply into lifeless nature and produce such great technical accomplishments can tell us anything about human nature. Those who do not put their faith in the fable convenu of outer so-called history know that until three or four centuries ago the inner nature of the human being 
was accessible to primal, instinctive knowledge. Humankind as a whole, however, develops and changes over time, just as each individual does. And at the current state and at the current stage of our collective evolution, this instinctive knowledge is no longer possible. Since the days of Copernicus and Galileo, we have had to investigate outer phenomena consciously. Now, we must also investigate human nature consciously. At the decisive point where natural science proves incapable of insight into the essential nature of the human being, we must fall back on the intellectual modesty, as I have often called it, that is the starting point of truly human development. Unless a genuine feeling for for knowledge leads us to intellectual modesty, we will not achieve real insight into the nature of the human being. Imagine how five-year-olds relate to the contents of a book of Goethe's lyric poetry. They can do no more than look at the book or perhaps damage it. We realize that they have yet to undergo the development that allows the contents to speak to adults. Similarly, we must realize that our natural development equips us for life as little as it equips a five-year-old to deal with a volume of verse. We can, however, further our development deliberately by applying methods that transcend those which are normally believed to be the only means possible. If we take our development into our own hands, we discover unknown forces lying hidden within us. When these forces are awakened, they can lead to a type of knowledge as rigorously scientific as any discoveries of the natural sciences. This new knowledge transcends knowledge of the outer sense-perceptible world and leads us into the supersensible world where we can begin to penetrate the inner nature of the human being. The first step, however, is to admit that the forces which enable us to perceive the natural world are inadequate for perceiving inner human nature. This higher perception requires forces that lie waiting to be brought up from the depths of the human soul. Until we make the effort, however, they are as dormant as the intellect of a five-year-old child. Spiritual science, as you know, recognizes the possibility of moving from a perspective adequate for perceiving and understanding the lifeless outer world to cognitive perspectives that allow us to penetrate into the essence of being human. This science of the spirit is not the same as the idle ruminations of self-absorbed mysticism or any outer practices intended to lead to spirit. It is based entirely on real human developmental potentials similar to the inner faculties mathematicians develop. The science of spirit aims to be as strictly logical as any other branch of science, but it applies its logic only to the spiritual perception that results when dormant faculties are awakened in the human soul. My book titled How to Know Higher Worlds describes soul-spiritual practices that cultivate inner forces and open our spirit eyes and ears, to use Goethe's words, so that we actually perceive spirit and soul, which are otherwise mere words to us. In this book, I point out the importance of cultivating and strengthening our thinking and the need for self-discipline 
that is for deliberately taking our development in hand rather than simply leaving it up to life if we are to open our spiritual eyes and ears. Most of our contemporaries still actively reject such ideas. We need only point out, however, that in our time social demands are emerging everywhere. At the same time, anti-social drives prevail. These anti-social drives stem from the fact that human beings pass each other by without understanding one another. And why don't we understand each other? Because what we call knowledge is all in our heads. It is limited to the intellect and does not pervade the whole person. The unique aspect of our spiritual science is that the insights provided by the forces it cultivates do pervade the whole person. They not only speak to our intellect or our heads, but also pour into our feelings and our will. They imbue our feelings with understanding for the other human beings around us, and imbue our will with ethical impulses and a sense of social responsibility that also has immediate practical impacts. An unfortunate distinction between intellectual and manual work is currently being proclaimed on every street corner. What is manual work? Nothing more or less than applying our bodily instruments in the service of our will. We will understand the inmost impulses of spiritual science, however, only when we keep the whole person in mind and realize, as I have so often said, that our will is a spiritual element that pulses in everything we do as whole human beings and reflects back into our reason or our heads. I hope you will forgive me for mentioning several personal examples at this point. I do so only because they will clarify the objective state of affairs. As you know, the Gertianum that is under construction on a hill in Dornach, Switzerland, in the Jura Mountains, is intended to become a college of spiritual science. When we started planning the college and its building, it was out of the question to consult any architect who worked from an outdated architectural or artistic perspective. This building, dedicated to the pursuit of spiritual science, required a different approach. From the very beginning, our spiritual science has proven capable of involvement in all the outer manifestations of culture. It is truly able to revive and fructify our dated art and architecture, as well as our working life and practical affairs. Clearly, we could not simply hire someone to construct a building in the Greek, Romanesque, Gothic, or any other style. Spiritual science itself gave rise to the architectural ideas of what the building would have to look like in every line and form. Even in its smallest details, it is a visible crystallization of the ethos of spiritual science. But to return to the personal examples, in the fall and winter of 1913-1914, I built a detailed model of the entire building. Even the architectural drawings were based on it. So was that manual labor or intellectual labor? In this case, the two coalesced and functioned as a unity. I know this because I did it. Then again, there is also almost nothing in the building that I have not had a hand in, like any other worker. 
And you might also be interested to know that we are working on a nine and a half meter high wooden statue, an artistic representation of the human riddle of our time, to serve as the focal point of the interior. The work is artistic, but it resembles nothing as much as chopping wood, if I may say so myself, and I have calluses on my fingers to show that the creative intellectual work that takes place there from morning to night involves real hands-on activity. And the final example. A short time ago we had to come to a financial decision about whether to make or purchase chairs. The bid we received was outrageously high, so together with one of our exceptionally skillful workers we made a sample chair in our art studio. When it was done, there was no way of telling where the intellectual work left off and the manual work began. By the way, those chairs will cost only 40% of what we would have had to pay the bidder. Our group of co-workers consists partly of employees and partly of friends of our movement. For example, there is one woman, a certified medical assistant, who sharpens chisels for our sculpture work from morning till night. In the working relationships in this group, there is actually only one obstacle that prevents intellectual work from merging seamlessly with manual work to the complete satisfaction of workers of both types. That obstacle is the organization that exists among the employees who view everything the intellectual workers do with mistrust, even though both groups are actually doing the same work. What caused this deep abyss that separates the inner work of art, science, and political intellectual leadership from the outer work performed primarily by the working class? The reason is that everything relating to the human being as a whole has been eliminated from our thinking. <clears throat> Healing this abyss is possible only through spiritual science not through any unsound, one-sided mysticism or theosophy that people of leisure cultivate without developing any practical impetus. Spiritual science fosters healing by involving the whole person. Having said this, let me add that I am certain that the knowledge I now represent before the world in full responsibility would never have come to me if I had not had to spend my entire life doing things that would ordinarily be considered manual work, because that kind of work also has specific effects on a person. So-called mental work that engages only the intellect does not reach the spirit. Today we think of manual labor or practical work as, quote, out there, close quote, and mental intellectual work as, quote, in here, close quote. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As paradoxical as it may sound to many people today, the separation between practical work and so-called intellectual work developed because both are devoid of spirit. Either we are stuck on the mechanistic treadmill of technology, as workers standing in front of machines and applying our intellect exclusively to the performance of mechanical tasks, or we are educated for intellectual activity and are insufficiently involved in real practical work. Our intellectual activity is as devoid of spirit as our practical activity. Spirit will be present in our thoughts 
only when they are fully saturated with reality, when we are harmoniously involved in the world as whole individuals, and when we think not merely with our heads, but as people who touch and shape things with their hands and notice how practical activity reflects back into the head. The products of disconnected thinking are as devoid of spirit as any products of machines. Spiritual science as we know it must not engage in a form of mysticism that is remote from everyday life, but must grow out of full involvement in life. In comparison to the usual intellectual and cultural activity of today, spiritual science must be much more completely saturated with reality. But can we actually call our contemporary intellectual culture, quote, saturated with reality, close quote? Don't we see that our science is powerless to grasp the spirit? In our culture, we usually think we are involved in unbiased scientific activity. This unbiased science, however, came about over the course of several centuries when social conditions allowed the religious denominations to monopolize everything that people wanted to know about soul and spirit, about the life that transcends birth and death. We were allowed to think independently about the outer sense-perceptible world, but not about soul and spirit. As we adapted to this centuries-long ban on soul and spirit research, our scientists became accustomed to limiting their thinking and investigation to the sense-perceptible world. Ultimately, through an elaborate process of self-deception, they arrived at the conviction that exact science was inherently limited to studying the outer sense-perceptible world and that soul and spirit research went beyond the limits of human cognition. This idea took root in modern sensibilities until it pervaded all aspects of our life. Such a limited approach allows fruitful thinking about the natural world, but proves inadequate as soon as it is applied to human society. To establish genuine social sciences with a real impact on life would require imbuing ourselves with an holistic view of the human being. The influences I have just described have prevented us from developing such a view. That is how we came to accept spirit and soul as merely the fixed outcomes of centuries of dogma rather than as legitimate subjects for research. Spirit and soul hover over quote-unquote real life like so much smoke and fog, and we have come to view reality as if shaped exclusively by economic forces. We have ceased to believe that spirit works in economic forces, and this disbelief has led to the disastrous conviction that spiritual, cultural, and intellectual life will develop on their own out of purely economic forces if those forces are simply organized appropriately. We lack any insight that economic phenomena were originally manifestations of spiritual activity. We also fail to realize that our culture has become estranged from the real world. Its recovery will require a real science of spirit capable of understanding human beings as fully and completely as the natural sciences understand machines. This science of spirit, however, 
must be based on the cultivation of forces in human nature. To put it briefly, it has become extremely difficult to recognize that spiritual science must become the foundation for understanding and mastering societal issues. The human intellect seems to lack the impetus to delve into real life, and as a consequence our lives will become increasingly chaotic unless our feelings and will are stimulated by other impulses that allow individuals to relate to each other on a one-to-one basis and to shape and direct social forces. No matter what methods you adopt from our exact and exemplary natural sciences, you will not be able to develop social sciences on the same basis. Trying to apply to the social sciences perceptions and ideas acquired without benefit of the insights of spiritual science is like trying to apply paint to a greased surface. Paint will not adhere to a greasy surface and neither will merely intellectual science adhere to real life. Our public life is crying out for a deepening that spiritual science can provide. Spiritual science will have to provide the foundation for resolving the unconscious contents of modern social demands. The actual demands cannot be formulated because the requisite power of thinking is not available to people. That is why we must not see spiritual science as something to which we devote a few passing thoughts. In fact, it is one of the most necessary prerequisites for the recovery of our public life. As a pragmatist, I know what people will say, that they have jobs, they have to work, and they don't have enough time to devote to something as complex as spiritual science. On the other hand, no matter how busy we are today, we cannot avoid noticing that we are treading on a slippery slope. Does what we are busy doing simply help lead the way into chaos? Don't we really need to devote every hour we can spare to radical prospects for recovery? Spiritual science, as we know and practice it, is intimately related to the century-old cry for freedom of thought, which is actually a cry for social freedom. Strangely enough, when we now attempt to examine what the stormy surges of so-called social demands bring to the surface, we repeatedly collide with the need to truly understand the impulse of human freedom, which manifests in different ways. We touch on an important point here, a point acknowledged even by Woodrow Wilson, whom I consider the most hapless of all the influential and so-called outstanding individuals of our times. Since I never spoke differently about Woodrow Wilson, even during the war, on neutral ground, when he was being worshipped everywhere, I suppose I can continue in a similarly uncomplimentary vein. Many passages in Wilson's book titled The New Freedom suggest that social conditions can be improved only by taking people's quest for freedom seriously. Obviously, he is primarily aware of conditions in America. But what does human freedom mean to him? Here we come upon a very interesting chapter in modern thinking. Wilson is, after all, a representative thinker of sorts. Writing on freedom, he expresses the following view. We can get an idea of freedom by looking at how a gear functions in a machine. 
If the mechanical device operates freely and without hindrance, we say that the gear moves freely. Similarly, a ship's machinery must be adapted to the motion of the waves, so the waves help propel the boat forward freely rather than obstructing its progress. Wilson then compares what the impulse of human freedom ought to be to a gear in a machine or a ship in the ocean waves, claiming that human beings are free when they move forward freely in the context of outer circumstances, when their forces are integrated into outer forces and are not obstructed. I find it very interesting that this strange view of human freedom should emerge from our modern scientific way of thinking. Isn't it the opposite of freedom, when you are so completely adapted to outer circumstances that you can only move with them, not against them? Doesn't freedom demand the ability to resist outer circumstances when necessary? Wouldn't we have to compare freedom to something that allows the ship to turn against the ways and stop if necessary? This strange view will never lead to sound diplomatic insight. At best it can lead only to Wilson's abstract fourteen points, as at least some of which have been favorably received even in this country. But where does this view come from? It comes from our failure to realize that to truly speak of freedom we must return to human thought as such, which is the only thing that can possibly provide a real impulse for freedom in our life. This is the idea I attempted to present thirty years ago entitled The Philosophy of Freedom, which has recently appeared in a new and updated edition. In that book I attempted to formulate the human impulse for freedom in a way that is different from the prevailing modern conception. I attempted to show that we are asking the wrong questions about human freedom. We ask, are human beings free or not free? Are we beings who can freely make decisions and take responsibility for them? Or are we creatures of nature, tied to natural or spiritual inevitabilities? People have asked these questions for millennia and are still asking them today, but these are the wrong questions. Our questions about freedom are actually questions about human development, the development we undergo in adolescence or even later in life, in order to acquire inner forces not provided by nature. We cannot ask, are human beings free? In terms of what nature gives us, we are not free. But we can become increasingly free by awakening forces that lie dormant within us, forces that nature does not awaken for us. The appropriate question is not whether human beings are free, but simply is there a way for human beings to acquire freedom? And yes, there is a way. Thirty years ago I attempted to show that when we progress to the point of developing an inner life in which we grasp the ethical motivation for our actions in pure thoughts, we can then attribute our actions to real thought impulses not simply to instinctive emotions. Such thoughts merge with outer reality as lover and beloved become one. When this happens, we approach freedom. Freedom, therefore, is as much the child of thought, conceived in spiritual clairvoyance rather than under outer duress, as the child of true devoted love for the object of one's actions.
This is what German culture was striving for through Schiller, when he opposed Kant and sensed something of this freedom. We could do well to continue to cultivate it today. It became apparent to me, however, that we can speak only about what underlies moral actions, a foundation that does exist although people remain unconscious of it, and that we must call it, in quotes, intuition. This is the moral intuition of the philosophy of freedom. This was the starting point for everything I later attempted to accomplish in the field of spiritual science. Please don't think that I am being immodest. I am well aware that this book, which I wrote thirty years ago as a young man, suffered from all the childhood diseases of nineteenth-century thinking, so to speak. But I also know that the intellectual life of the nineteenth century also planted the seeds of a type of thinking that leads to the spirit. I realized that when human beings rise to ethical impulses, in moral intuition, as truly free beings, they are already, in quotes, clairvoyant, to use a much maligned word, with regard to their ethical intuitions. The impulses for all ethical activity transcend sense-perceptible reality. Fundamentally, truly ethical imperatives are products of human clairvoyance. In this sense, there is a straight line from the philosophy of freedom to today's spiritual science. Freedom emerges only in human beings who cultivate their own development. As this development continues and we extend the foundations of freedom, however, we can become independent of any ethical system and rise freely into domains of spirit. Freedom, therefore, is associated with the development of human thinking. Essentially, freedom is always freedom of thought. And when we look at representative individuals such as Woodrow Wilson, we realize that they come up with paradoxical definitions, like Wilson's definition of freedom, for example, because they have never grasped that thinking must be rooted in real spirit if it is not to become abstract. Examples such as this reveal the principal shortcoming of our modern intellectual culture, which consists in not discerning the spiritual nature of the human being. We then also recognize freedom of thought as the principal demand of our time and mastering social forces as its principal need. Now and in the near future, our life must move toward providing a foundation for these three principal phenomena. The primal human impulse of freedom cannot be found in any aspect of human nature that is accessible to natural scientific thinking, but only in the aspect accessible to spirit perception. <coughs> freedom has been the subject of much contention because people want to make decisions about it without so much as setting foot on the ground that supports insight into the immortal nature of the human soul. But without an unbiased approach to thinking about human immortality, we are in no position to consider the essence of human freedom. We will not discover the essential character of this freedom if we seek it anywhere else than in a type of thinking that is not natural. 
once found, however, it fills individuals with the impulse to become truly socially responsible beings, inserting us into the social order in a way that releases social forces from within, which is exactly what we need. I mentioned earlier that during the construction of our building in Dornach, people who have actually achieved certain heights of spiritual training volunteered for very ordinary dirty work and proved no less competent in that regard than people we normally call manual laborers. Admittedly, the Gertianum is a symbol or representation of our spiritual scientific movement, and the social basis of its construction is not exactly that of a for-profit venture. Title Social Renewal and my lectures on the threefold social organism present the possibility of creating similar foundations for all of our public life. It is simply a shame, however, that many people in other countries cannot visit the building because crossing national borders is impossible at the moment. Why has an anthroposophical group managed to free up social forces that allow the proletarian ideal to be realized, although not in the way it is usually conceived? Because everything we are doing in Dornach, down to the last detail, rests on an holistic approach to life derived from spiritual scientific impulses. The basis of what we are doing there on a small scale could also be applied to all public life. Every factory, every bank, every entrepreneurial venture, all aspects of practical life could be reorganized on the basis of a science that uses the methods I have described to penetrate deeply enough into the essence of human nature to grasp living realities instead of abstract thoughts and abstract natural laws. We are not looking for abstract mysticism, but for facts that ground us in life's realities. <clears throat> By recognizing the essential nature of the human being, spiritual science also discovers social forces that enable us to organize life in ways that would allow everyone to lead a humanly worthy existence. Therefore, social forces, freedom of thought, and spiritual science are all related. Spiritual science is the exact opposite of what it is often believed to be. It is not something dreamt up by idle bystanders or people of leisure. It aims to be the truly practical approach to life that is so sadly lacking in our time. It aims to immerse itself in life, mastering it through science and practical activity. It deals with human realities, not simply life as we imagine it to be. Today there are perfectly well-meaning people who realize that the intellect and reason we have cultivated for the last few centuries are inadequate to restore health to our public life. If you ask these people what would be adequate, they give abstract answers about re-enlivening, in quotes, soul with, in quotes, spirit, but they come up with the strangest excuses for rejecting real spiritual science. <laughs> Essentially, they are afraid of it. We repeatedly hear statements like, quote, not everyone can become a spiritual researcher, close quote. That is indeed true, as I have repeatedly emphasized here. 
But it is quite possible for everyone to take the first steps into the spiritual worlds of supersensible existence, as described in title How to Know Higher Worlds and in the second part of title Esoteric Science. Anyone can take these preliminary steps at any time, but progressing to a deeper understanding of the beings of the supersensible worlds depends on various experiences for which some people today are not yet ready. Becoming a spiritual researcher, in the truest sense of the word, involves overcoming many obstacles. For example, when body-free cognition sets in, we enter a world that is totally unfamiliar. All of our ordinary supports, the security of experiencing the sense-perceptible world, our ordinary intellect, and so on, all disappear, and we must be guided by different inner forces. It is like hanging over the edge of a cliff and having to rely entirely on your own inner being's center of gravity. Many people are afraid of this situation, either consciously or unconsciously, and they disguise their fear in logical objections to spiritual science. They give you all kinds of nice reasons, but the truth is that they are simply afraid of the unknown. We must also consider, however, that we are naturally adapted only to life in the outer sense-perceptible world. The habits we acquire there do not equip us to face the spiritual world, which is completely different. Consequently, when we attempt to delve deeper into that world, we undergo terribly painful experiences. Once we overcome such obstacles, Insights emerge from the depths of our being and we learn about the eternal aspect of human nature and the spirit that underlies the entire world. Not everyone can come this far on the path to spiritual knowledge. But as, but as I have emphasized repeatedly, it is not necessary to be a spiritual researcher oneself in order to assess the legitimacy of statements about worlds we still do not know. Healthy common sense, unbiased by outer perception, is sufficient for distinguishing whether someone is speaking logically or as a spiritist of some sort. Logic is available to all of us, and it is all we need to tell whether someone is describing spiritually healthy experiences. People repeatedly point out that anyone can become convinced of the accuracy of natural scientific claims simply by paying attention to the scientists' laboratory methods. It is equally correct to say that anyone can be convinced of the truth of the contents of How to Know Higher Worlds or Title Theosophy because the character and qualities of spiritual researchers allow us to draw conclusions about the inherent merit of their insights. If we can acknowledge their value, these insights and their applications to life are worth as much to us as they are to those who have achieved them personally. We use outer facts to confirm the findings of natural science. Similarly, healthy common sense can assess the manner in which insights are presented, and in this way we can use it to confirm the statements of spiritual researchers. Just imagine the social forces that will be released as more and more people bear witness to spiritual forces 
which are discovered only by spiritual researchers in supersensible worlds, but can be accepted by other people who simply rely on their own healthy common sense. After all, not everyone can become a chemist or a physicist either. The public social interactions that arise out of a spiritual scientific view of the human being speak for themselves and awaken forces of trust in our public life. At present such trust is still undermined by the fact that individuals who have not taken their own development in hand and can barely be considered adults feel entitled to pass judgment on anything and everything. We founded the Waldorf School which was made possible by our dear friend Mr. Emil Molt, as an example of a school system based on true insight and as a demonstration of how spiritual science truly can supply practical impulses for public life. We are attempting to solve a social problem in the right way. Our goal is for every child to grow up to be an adult who can receive the guiding forces needed for fruitful participation in public life. These forces will not come from the boring, inaccessible knowledge often propounded by the social thinkers of our time. In its place, we are attempting to foster real, socially responsible thinking based on human trust and the secure foundations of the human soul. We see each child in this school as a human being in progress whose development can be helped along by insights that fundamentally enliven our methods of instruction. Here, as in all of its experimental practical applications, spiritual science shows us what is needed. In one lecture, of course, I am limited to only a couple of the possible perspectives on spiritual science as a necessary challenge to contemporary and future developments. These inherently one-sided indications are easy to oppose because they cannot show the whole picture. Before we close, however, I would like to go back to the beginning and reiterate how few people recognize that our culture is on a slippery slope. The general failure to seek a basis for rebuilding our intellectual, ethical and general cultural life weighs heavily on my heart. Many examples exist, and I will mention a few before concluding. What conclusions do people active in public affairs draw from the realities of our present situation? There is one passage in the most recent book by the Austrian statesman Zernin that deserves to be taken to heart, although as for the rest of the book, you can take it or leave it. Quote, the great drama that has dominated the world for the last five years continues, although in a different form. I believe future generations will refer to it as the world revolution, not the world war, recognizing that the war was only the beginning of the revolution. The treaties of Versailles and Saint-Germain will have no lasting effect. This peace harbors the destructive seed of death. The struggles that convulse Europe are not abating. Subterranean rumbling continues, as if in a massive earthquake, and from time to time the earth will break open and spew fire into the sky. Outbreaks of elemental violence will repeatedly devastate the nations of Europe until all reminders of the insanity of this war have been swept away. 
slowly and under unspeakable sacrifices a new world will be born. Future generations will look back on our century as a protracted bad dream. Even the darkest night, however, is followed by a new day. Generations have gone to the grave through murder, starvation, or illness. Millions of people with hatred and murder in their hearts have died in efforts to annihilate and destroy. But new generations are arising, and a new spirit rises with them. Every winter is followed by spring. Resurrection follows death. That is an eternal law in the cycle of life. Blessed are those called to service in building up the new world. So Tsernin, and his name is spelled C-Z-E-R-N-I-N, Tsernin, so Tsernin also speaks of a new spirit. But I know he would reject our new spirit as a phantasmagoria, People talk about, quote, new spirit, close quote, in abstract terms, but they take to their heels at the concrete prospect of spirit. Nevertheless, tracing the path of this new concrete spirit is a serious matter. <clears throat> Today, many people attack spiritual science from the perspective of their idea of Christianity, refusing to acknowledge that spiritual science also offers a vital foundation for re-enlivening Christianity. In the Christianity of the future, we will rediscover the living Christ, as well as the historic reality of the events of Golgotha, through spiritual scientific research. By now, a majority of theologians turn the Christ into the, quote, simple man from Nazareth, close quote, and no longer teach that he is the actual central meaning of earthly existence. Spiritual science will provide a new basis for Christian spirituality. To Christians who fear the impact of spiritual science, we should say that the foundation of Christianity is so solid that it has nothing to fear from spiritual science. Just as it had no reason to fear the invention of the air pump or similar devices, it has no reason to fear spiritual scientific teachings on destiny or repeated earthly lives. Christianity is strong enough to absorb anything that comes from spiritual science. Whether modern supporters of the Christian denominations are equally strong is a different question, albeit a serious one. The so-called World War drummed into us the need for an international perspective. In thinking about Europe, and our European culture, many people echo the thoughts of a Japanese diplomat, an educated man who said, quote, For a number of years, we in Japan believed in the existence of justice in the Western Christian world. Recent years have taught us that it does not exist. The high-sounding teachings and explanations of Christian nations are nothing more than an insolent mask that conceals their injustice and greed. We now know that there is no such thing as international justice. And we also know that only superior might can contain the capitalist power of the West. Japan has learned this, and the rest of Asia is in the process of learning it. Our China policy is explained by the fact that we know we cannot count on justice or honorable dealings on the part of the Western powers. They will divide and destroy China and then reduce Japan to vassalage. They will do so without conscience, consideration, or hesitation, 
if we in Japan do not maintain our dominance and support and develop China ourselves. Ultimately, Western exploitation would be the ruin of China and our policy its deliverance. In China and our Pacific territories, we must be fully equipped to defend ourselves adequately. For us to trust an Anglo-Saxon federation or to believe in any latent, let alone prevailing justice, in Christian civilization would be proof that we are idiots who deserve the destiny of national ruin, which we would inevitably face at the hands of the Western powers. Whatever we may think of these words, they reveal how the world thinks about us, and we have every reason to regard them as fact, especially when they come from people who actually ought to be aware of what our spiritual culture demands. Repeated objections to my efforts to present a new spirituality are truly misplaced. Let me read that sentence again especially when they come from people who actually ought to be aware of what our spiritual cultural demands, repeated objections to my efforts to present a new spirituality are truly misplaced. I mean objections such as, quote, it is impossible to confirm what spiritual researchers say, close quote. For example, a man who lives not far from here recently published a brochure entitled Rudolf Steiner, Philosopher and Theosophist. I would like to make only one point with regard to the spirit and logic of his remarks. He says, quote, under, circumstar- under certain circumstances, I would have to be an historian, a physicist, or a chemist in order to test their ideas for myself. I cannot confirm theosophical truths, however, if I am not clairvoyant. <coughs> Close quote. Of course, I also cannot confirm the results of chemist research without becoming a chemist myself which I could conceivably do, but people do not want to make the effort to become spiritual scientists. In effect, this man is saying something very strange. I need to be able to confirm these statements without learning to apply relevant methods of testing. For him, the question is not whether it is possible to determine the validity of a statement after having acquired the basis for making the determination but whether he has or could have made that determination himself. Quote, All formal logical criticism aside, I must answer that question in the negative. Close quote. I readily admit that he has to answer it in the negative, but just as I recognize the need to become a chemist myself in order to confirm the results of chemists' research, anyone who wants to check the validity of spiritual scientific truths must take steps to become a spiritual researcher, which this man refuses to do. His entire booklet is full of this logic, which also underlies many misrepresentations of spiritual science. We have better things to do than to worry about objections of this sort. It would, however, be fitting for the much-tested German people to reassess their relationship to the actual foundations of our culture. Let me quote a few sentences from an essay on Schiller and Goethe written in 1858 by the brilliant art historian Hermann Grimm. Over sixty years ago Grimm said, The true history of Germany is the history of national cultural movements. Great and illuminating deeds occur only when enthusiasm for great thoughts arouses the nation 
and sets moribund forces in motion. Shouldn't we take these words to heart today? <clears throat> and what about these other words that Grimm, surely no revolutionary, wrote in 1858? He said, quote, The milestones of the people's progress are not the names of German kaisers and kings, close quote, but deeds in the domain of thought that approaches spirit. At no point in time has it ever been more necessary for Germans to accept and act on Grimm's assessment than now, in this time of need and severe tribulation. We must urge our contemporaries to look back on our great forebears, so we may become their worthy successors. Are we to believe that our forefathers' confessions of faith in our culture are no longer valid today? Must we not continue their efforts rather than merely quoting their words? Quoting Goethe is not the same as understanding him. We understand him only if we continue his efforts. <clears throat> it is nonsense to quote Johann Gottlieb Fichte today without also carrying on his cultural efforts. You have heard what the world thinks of German culture. The rest of the world must recognize that Germans again have the will to look back on the real milestones in their progress as a people. Our forebears, the great pillars of German culture, were often called dreamers. They were misjudged, just as any talk of spirit is misjudged today. Nonetheless, there were people who understood the connection between spiritual striving and reality. At an important moment, Johann Gottlieb Fichte said something to this effect, quote, Other people say that ideals cannot intervene directly in practical matters. We idealists know that too, perhaps better than they do. But we also know that our life must take its direction from ideals. Those who do not realize this are not included in the world's plan for humanity. We can only hope that they will also be granted sunshine and rain at the appropriate times, along with good digestion and, if possible, a few good thoughts. Much depends on the spirit in which we now look up to the activity of the great pillars of those who gave birth to German culture. Reality, not abstract judgment, will determine the outcome. If we, as descendants of these cultural forebears, learn to appreciate genuine spiritual practice, our predecessors will not have been the dreamers the world believes them to be. But they will indeed go down in history as dreamers if we, or our descendants, choose to remain ignorant of the real German spirit and neglect to come to grips with the realities of spiritual practice. May the German people honor the spirit invoked by German culture and thus avoid condemning their cultural forebears to this ignominious fate. That is all I wanted to say to you today. The end of chap- lecture 4.